This episode of TGC Podcast is brought to you by Crossway, publisher of The Death of Porn, Men of Integrity, Building a World of Nobility, by Ray Ortland. In this book, Ray aims to inspire men to come together in new ways to fight the injustice of porn and build a world of nobility for every man and woman. For more information, visit crossway.org. This episode of TGC Podcast is sponsored by Acts 29 with an invitation to their 2024 Next Conference happening April 15th through the 17th in Dallas, Texas. You don't want to miss this great lineup of speakers, including Sam Albury, Matt Chandler, Brian Loritz, John Piper, and more. The Next Conference will equip and encourage church planters and church leaders of all types for church ministry. To learn more and register for Next, visit acts29.com slash next. TGC podcast listeners will receive a special discount of $20 off registration prices by using the code TGC. Again, visit acts29.com slash next. That's acts29.com slash next. Welcome to the Gospel Coalition Podcast, equipping the next generation of believers, pastors, and church leaders to shape life and ministry around the gospel. Today you'll hear a message from Scott Sauls titled, How Gentleness Raises Us Above Cancel Culture. This talk was originally delivered at TGC's 2021 National Conference. Scott Sauls, and uh, it's uh, my privilege to be with you for the next 45 minutes. Uh, the, the folks at Gospel Coalition have uh, graciously invited me to uh, speak on the subject, Rising Above Cancel Culture with the Fruit of Gentleness. And um, what I want to do is start with uh, just sharing with you a meme that I came across that summarized the year 2020. You may have seen it. It was all over the internet. It was this uh, this image of, I think, four or five porta-potties lined up at a construction site, and they were all uh, blazing on fire. And the meme said, if 2020 were a scented candle, If you were to think of a word to summarize the last year, year and a half, uh, in just a word, you might come across with words like polarized, tribalized, racialized, radicalized, politicized, divided, outraged, uh, filled with contempt, us against them. You could go on and on and on. And uh, if you're like me, you're, you're, you're really tired of this, and you're longing for uh, hopefully the days when we can get back to precedented times. Uh, there's another word uh, for 2020, unprecedented times, and I think what, what I want to do is start my talk off by reminding us that nothing we've been through in the last year is unprecedented. The history of the world going all the way back to the beginning is filled with division, with violence, with canceling other people. 
If you go all the way back to Genesis chapter 3, where Adam and Eve decide to go independent from God, and, and the, the, the moment they did that, they began turning on each other. You might remember that famous verse where, where Adam looked to God and, and said, the woman that you gave me, she is to blame for my disobedience. So he's blaming God and he's blaming his wife. And then we get to Genesis chapter 4 and we get history's first murder, which comes out of a sibling rivalry when one brother envies another and Cain tragically and irreversibly takes the life of his brother. He literally cancels him. And so this problem that we're living with is as old as time. Uh, Kathy Keller once uh, shared with a group of us her thought on the true nature and religion of the human heart. And she said that the natural religion of every human heart is self-righteousness. And self-righteousness is most succinctly defined in Luke chapter 18, verse 9, where it says there were some who trusted in themselves that they were righteous, and they looked down on other people with contempt. That has been in the human heart, and the behaviors that proceed from that have been occurring ever since the beginning of time. And so the times we're not in, or the times we're in are not unprecedented, uh, and yet... They are deeply concerning and in many ways unacceptable, especially among those who live in light of the gospel and believe the gospel. There are actually two characters that have emerged uh, on the cultural scene recently that I, I think speak to where people's hearts are these days. One is Ted Lasso. Does anybody know who Ted Lasso is? Okay, we love Ted Lasso uh, because he is a glass-half-full kind of person. He's kind. You, you want to hug him. Uh, but he's not real. That's the one thing we realized when the show was over, that he's not real. But there's another person who has re-emerged uh, named Fred Rogers. A couple of years ago, uh, there was a documentary released about Mr. Rogers from Mr. Rogers' Neighborhood Life, Fred Rogers. Uh, it went viral. And then not long after that, there was a film uh, starring Tom Hanks as Fred Rogers. Now, Tom Hanks doesn't take a part unless there's something significant going on with the character. And there already was momentum around the things that Mr. Rogers brought many years ago to the world. Wonder if we can get back to that, people might be thinking. So Mr. Rogers' Neighborhood, it was this nerdy, cardigan-sweater-wearing, soft-spoken, wiry, wiry guy who ran a low-budget children's program on, um, on, the, on public, public broadcasting system. He helped to raise me, and I imagine he might have helped to raise some of you. Even though my relationship with Mr. Rogers was through a screen, I felt safe with him. He was one of the very few people in the world that I felt safe with growing up. It's hard to find people who feel safe anymore, who have this kind of aroma that Fred Rogers brought to the world. Since Fred Rogers is a real person, I want to camp out on him instead of Ted Lasso as sort of my, my cultural illustration of the biblical truths I'm going to talk about today. I think that his renewed popularity is an indicator 
of how people are feeling right now. I think people are feeling anxious. I think people are feeling afraid to speak up or to share opinions or to uh, do anything that, that might elicit an attack or, or some sort of call out or some kind of cancellation. I think, I think so many of us, we feel like we're walking on eggshells in the climate that we're in. We're so tribalized that, that, that everybody's looking to judge and punish somebody. Friendships and communities are now built not around common good, but around common enemies, it seems. And in comes Mr. Rogers again. I think that the, the, the Ted Lasso, Fred Rogers phenomena both suggest that there is a quiet majority, not minority, but majority, that is craving what both of these characters, one fictitious, one real, have offered to the world, and that is words that build up. Or what Ann Voskamp likes to say, words that make souls stronger. Words are incredibly powerful things. Whoever said that sticks and stones may break my bones, but words can never hurt me was wrong. You know, Psychology Today rewrote that statement some time ago to read, sticks and stones may break my bones, but words can cut me deeply. Let's, let's remember that it's words that actually put the galaxies into being. It's words that send, words that were spoken at some point in life that send people into counseling offices for the rest of their lives. Words are powerful. Words can be weaponized. Words are weaponized. You hear this in the Pharisee, in Jesus's parable of the Pharisee and the tax collector. Thank you, my God. And it's, it's in the hearing of the tax collector over here, just a few feet away from him. Thank you, my God, that I'm not like other men, robbers, evildoers, adulterers, tax collectors. I fast twice a week. I give a tenth of all I got. There he is canceling all these different people groups with his words, them, othering other people with his words. I wonder if this was why Jesus was so strong with his words toward scribes and Pharisees, because scribes and Pharisees were constantly weaponizing words when words are supposed to be put out there in order to advance grace and truth and uphold love. Mr. Rogers' three favorite words. I think this is why I felt safe with him. I like you. I like you. What if we got back to that? What if we took I love you to the next level? I love you, but I also enjoy you. you your existence makes me glad. I'm not just here to love you in the putting up with you, I'm committed to you sort of way, therefore I have to because it's the right thing, but, but I actually like you. My friend Russ Ramsey says that to me a lot. He's my colleague. Good guys taught here at Gospel Coalition before. Russ is one of my favorite friends because he says those three words. I like you. Those are powerful words. Fred Rogers treated people with dignity no matter where they were coming from, whether they agreed with him or disagreed with him. He was kind. He was an anti-2020 kind of guy. He was kind, warm, safe, approachable, loving, friendly, and above all else, gentle. You might say that Mr. Rogers was a good picture of the aroma of Christ. He was a follower of Christ. He was a believer in Christ. Christ the great I am. Remember the I am statements from John's gospel. There were seven of them. 
Jesus said, I am the bread of life. I am the light of the world. I'm the door of the sheep. I'm the resurrection and the life. I'm the good shepherd. I'm the way, the truth, and the life. I am the vine. And then in Matthew's gospel, in Matthew's gospel, maybe because all of culture had canceled Matthew because of his profession, Matthew was specifically and especially awakened to a, an eighth I am statement that Jesus made. In which he says, come to me all you who are weary and burdened, especially lonely tax collectors who have been written off by the entire culture because they can't stand you because of what you've done to them, because of what you represent, because of your politics, because of, because of the way that you exploit, the way that you take advantage, the way that you put yourself first. You have been canceled. And in comes Jesus, risking cancellation himself by befriending a tax collector like Matthew, in the same way that he befriended a tax collector, a chief tax collector, no less, like Zacchaeus, who, because he didn't have friends, surrounded himself with, himself with branches and leaves in order to get a, a glimpse of Jesus. Climbed up to a, a safe and distant space just to get a glimpse. And Jesus looks up and calls him by name. Just Zacchaeus, I know you. And I, I think the song, the children's song that, that, that you might have learned in Sunday school, Zacchaeus, you come down. You remember the hand motions, kind of a scolding. You come down because I'm coming to your house. I don't think it was a scold. I think it was, brother, everybody's calling you an SOB, but I'm calling you a son of Abraham. Wait, wait, what? And furthermore, I'm going to show you hospitality, but it's going to be in your house. Your house is the lonely place where you go every single night. You, we're coming to your house. I'm going to bring some friends, and you're going to become a friend maker. And what happens? He comes alive because of grace. He comes alive and says, whatever I've defrauded anybody, I'm going to give them five times as much back. And over ha half of my possessions, I'm going to give away to the poor. I'm a different man now. Because that guy, he said he likes me. Jesus also got angry. I'm not going to bypass the prophetic fire of Jesus that would be irresponsible exegetically and otherwise. This is where, this is where I've gotten the most curiosity around, around this, this little guy right here. It's, it's my latest project. It's called A Gentle Answer, Our Secret Weapon in an Age of Us Against Them. Let me encourage you. If you've got to choose between the two, read Dane Ortland's book uh, on gentleness. Because I spend three chapters on what Dane spends writing an entire book about. And that is how to get the gentleness of Christ into your own heart fused into your own heart. And he does a beautiful, remarkable job. He does it in a whole book. I try to cram it into three chapters, and then the rest of mine is about how to take your gentleness out. But you'll never be able, you'll never be resourced to take your gentleness out and give it to your neighbor like Jesus did to Zacchaeus until gentleness has come in. You're not ever going to succeed in being like Jesus the one who is gentle and humble in heart by trying to be like Jesus. You're going to succeed at being like Jesus by spending your energy being with Jesus and receiving the energy of his gentleness and kindness towards you. Eighth I am statement, I am gentle and humble in heart. I give rest to weary, lonely, tired, exhausted, even canceled souls. 
But he also got angry. So did Mr. Rogers. The distress, the confusion, the curiosity that comes from people who haven't read the book is the title of chapter 5. Gentle people do anger well. And I think the operating assumption that we often have is that gentleness and anger, they cancel one another out. Speaking of canceling, they're not compatible. If you have one, you can't have the other. I want to make an argument, and I think the scriptures make an argument, that that both gentleness and anger complete one another. One cannot truly and fully exist without the other. I'm not sure what your English translations say when both the Psalms and Ephesians, which are most often translated in the English, in your anger do not sin. If you go, this is where, this is where a, some sort of knowledge or access to the original Hebrew or Greek matters. Because in the Hebrew and the Greek, in the Psalms and Ephesians, it says be angry. It's in the imperative mood. It's a command. Be, and you want to be Christian? Be angry. In the same way that Paul in in Romans 9 said, hate evil and cling to what is good. The only way you can cling to what's good is by hating evil. And the only only way they can really hate what's evil is by clinging to what is good. There's this dance here that, 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 that has to happen in order to be thorough in our discipleship. But anger is a lot like fire. There's a raging version The raging version of anger is like the raging version of fire. It can take a house down. It can decimate an entire landscape like we've seen in recent months in California along the coastline. If you're a This Is Us person, you still haven't gotten over the fact that Jack died in a house fire. There's also righteous anger. Or I'm sorry, righteous fire. Righteous fire cooks bacteria out of our food so that we don't get sick. It creates lovely ambiance by candlelight or around a fire pit or a fireplace in a gathering of friends or a romantic evening. It keeps us warm in the wintertime, prevents frostbite, has all kinds of righteous uses, fire does. Anger is the same. What does righteous anger look like from the one who's gentle and humble in heart? You remember when Jesus got all Bobby Knight on the temple. You guys remember Bobby Knight? Yeah, we're in Indiana right now, so it fits, right? Bobby Knight, if he would get upset with a call on the basketball court, he would just pick up a chair and throw it across the floor. Well, Jesus didn't quite get Bobby Knight. That was raging anger. Christ's anger is always righteous. It's never been unrighteous. But he did turn over tables in church. Could you imagine your pastor just you know, doing that in the, the hallway or in the lobby of your church, just getting so upset about something that he just grabs a table and flips it over? Or maybe one of you will go to the, one of the book tables. Uh, never mind. Don't do that. Don't go flip a book table over. But why did Jesus do that? Because people were trying to monetize something that was sacred. And if you look deeper into the story, they were invading the only place where the Gentiles were allowed. And so, so there, were, there were racial injustices involved as well. There were exclusionary dynamics going on as well. The Jews who had all of the inner courts decided they were also going to set up shop in the place where the Gentiles were supposed to find sanctuary and prayer. And that's why Jesus not only says, you know, you're corrupting it by, by, by trying to line your pockets, but, but he also says, my father's house is a house of prayer, and, and, and it's a house of prayer for all nations. That's the context. 
John chapter 11, he gets furious at death. Matthew chapter 23, he speaks words, strong words, toward religious bullies. Seems like these are the only people that Jesus seemed to bow up on. He didn't bow up on sexually damaged people. He bowed up on people who bowed up on sexually damaged people. Using words like hypocrites, whitewashed tombs, blind guys, fools, sons of hell, wicked, negligent, merciless, greedy. He got angry. Jesus lost his cool without ever losing his character. He's the lamb who's also the lion. He's kind, but he's also severe. He's gentle toward the weak. He's a defender of the weak. So here's, here's an example. Speaking of Pharisees and prostitutes, Luke chapter 7 a group of Pharisees hosting a dinner party at the home of Simon the Pharisee. They invite Jesus not to show him hospitality, but to ask him a bunch of gotcha questions in order to discredit him. And in comes this woman who's described as a woman who lived a sinful life in that town. All the scholars would say she's a prostitute. And what she does is she starts employing three of the primary tools of her trade. Her hair, her lips, and her perfume to anoint Jesus' feet, to express affection to him in one of the only ways that she knows how to express affection. It was appalling, culturally appalling in so many ways for her to do what she had done. And they start calling it out and they start saying, he's receiving that, there's no way he could be a prophet. He doesn't know what kind of sinners he, he's even dealing with. And, and Jesus turns around and he says, you want to talk about sinners? You haven't offered me a shred of hospitality since the moment I walked into your house. Furthermore, this, this woman has just put on a clinic to show you what worship really looks like, what it really looks like to love God and only people who know how deeply they've been forgiven and how far away they were from the throne of grace. Only people who know how far the good shepherd has gone in leaving the 99 to find the one, can love like this. So learn a thing or two. You think this is a moment to take an offense, but it's actually a seminary class. He stands between them. What, what feels like outrage to them feels like gentleness to her. Because he's standing between them, and he's essentially saying, you want to get to her, you got to go through me first, and good luck with that. John chapter 8, all the men want to cancel the woman caught in the act of adultery. Do you ever wonder where the man was who was caught in the act of adultery? They want, to, they want to eliminate her. They've all got their rocks. They're ready to throw them. Jesus asked them a gotcha question. You who are without sin, raise your hand. You be the first to throw a stone. They all walk away, and the only one left for her is the one who is without sin. And what does he say? I do not condemn you. Now go leave your life of sin. He doesn't dismiss ethics. He emphasizes ethics. But he establishes the climate for obedience first by saying, I don't condemn you. Now leave your life of sin. Reverse the order of those two sentences. Reverse that sequence. You lose Christianity. You lose Christ. You lose the power to be sanctified. Already spoken about Zacchaeus. There's also Peter. Peter's ready to cancel himself. He's so demoralized about how he's betrayed his master, denying him three times. And what is, 
what does the angel of the Lord say through Mark, who was Peter's protege? In Mark's gospel, it's the only gospel that adds this detail. When the angel of the Lord says to the women at the tomb, go tell the others and Peter that I'm coming to him. Go tell him I like him. Go tell him the Lord said, I like you. I want him to know that before I get there. So he's not on eggshells. So he's not nervous. So he's not skittish about seeing me again. Because the last time he saw me, he sold me out. Even Judas, the gospel writers cannot bring themselves to call him anything but the betrayer. And that's an appropriate name for Judas. But what does Jesus call him? Even as he's on his way to hell, what does Jesus call Judas? Friend. Because he takes no pleasure even in the death of the wicked. He takes no pleasure. I mean, what is it about Christians who believe in the existence of hell and are glad about it? It's one thing to believe in the existence. Of course, Jesus talked more about hell than he did about salvation. But to be glad about it, to be happy that that place is reserved for them, for the people that we're so prone to other. Jesus doesn't seem to take opportunity to cancel someone when he has every right to. Why? Because of what it says after John 3.16. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but that through him the world might be saved. So how might this apply to us? Let's talk a little bit about canceling. Let's talk about censoring. Generally, these things are bad ideas. I think we would all agree that, that, that these are some of the fruit. Some of the fruit. Not all of the fruit. Everybody's culpable in the climate that we're in. Some of the fruit of a hyper-politicized culture. I think Christians have become susceptible even to turning party platforms into our doctrine, pundits into our prophets, politicians into our Jesus, and the voting booth into our communion table. Let's think about that. There's a reason why Gallup has reported for the first time in the history of the United States that less than 50% of people in our country attend churches right now. And it's going down, 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 and it's younger generations and it's not because, it's not because they're running toward secularism in the world. Interestingly enough, it's because they're running from secularism in the church. Let that sink in for a moment. Never has there been a time in the history of the world where the church has gotten into bed with the power of the state. That it's not led to anything but more nominalism, more decline and more discrediting of the kingdom that is not of this world. A party spirit is just repackaged Pharisaism. So is prophetic zeal ever legitimate? Yes. Raging anger, righteous anger. Here's the difference. Raging anger attacks problem, or I'm, I'm sorry, raging anger attacks people. Righteous anger attacks problems. And as righteous anger attacks problem, you can learn this from Martin Luther King Jr. It also seeks to win the people who are creating the problem in the first place. It tries to cancel problems 
not people. It tries to win people in an effort to cancel problems. That's what righteous anger does. This is why C.S. Lewis famously said, Christianity is a fighting religion. And he went on to clarify, he said, Christianity thinks that God made the world, and it also thinks that a great many things have gone wrong with the world that God made, and that God insists and insists very loudly on our putting them right again. Lewis would also say, if you read history, you will find that those who, th who, who did the most for the present world were also the ones who thought the most of the next. In other words, the more heavenly-minded people have been, the more earthly good they have become. A key ingredient to redemption in the world is Christian distress. Christian distress. Have you ever... Have you ever studied the emotional life of God's prayer book, the Psalms? There's anger there. Be angry and sin not. That originated in the Psalms. There's hurt. Why do the wicked prosper? There's loneliness. My friends have abandoned me. I'm repulsive to them. My father and mother have forsaken me. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? There's sadness in the Psalms. I'm bent over, crushed, mourning all day long. There's fear there. When I'm afraid, I will trust in you. There's guilt and shame. I know my transgressions and my sin is ever before me. You know, the word reformed, which, which is popular in TGC circles and in my circles as well, it originates from the word reform. Who was the first and most famous Protestant reformer, protest and reformer? Martin Luther, with you know, his nailing of the 95 Theses on the door at Wittenberg, that came from distress because abuse of abuses and exploitations of, of weak, unassuming people in the church to line the priest's pockets. That's what started the whole thing was Luther's distress over abuse in the church. Taking advantage of the weak in the church. Christian distress is what leads to Christian prophetic ministry. It was Christian distress about disease and death that led Christians under Chrysostom to invent the hospital. It was Christians in distress over unformed minds and unrealized potential in our young people that led Christians to found every Ivy League university except for one. It was Christian distress about orphaned and homeless children that led George Mueller to start the orphan care movement. It was Christian distress about slavery that led John Newton, a former slave owner turned Christian, to get into the ear of William Wilberforce of Parliament as now his pastor and shepherd to cheer him on to fight that battle alone for abolition. And he won because of Newton's distress, encouraging him to persevere in this noble cause of justice and mercy. It was Christian distress about racial inequality that led Martin Luther King Jr. and John Perkins and all the others to lead us, lead for us the civil rights movement. It's Christian distress that got Chris, Christine Kane into fighting trafficking, human trafficking, especially of young women and girls, 
Mother Teresa, to, to fight on behalf of the unborn, and even to say courageously to a sitting president, stop taking the lives of your babies and just give them all to me at a national prayer breakfast. Christian distress has led to some good things. Righteous anger that seeks to cancel problems as it also seeks to win and persuade people. Never at the expense of love. When love is out the door, you have nothing, you gain nothing, you are nothing. According to 1 Corinthians 13, the greatest gift, the one that holds it all together, the, the, the one that, that God named as his greatest descriptor, love. Not only am I loving, I am love. I, God is love. Never at the expense of love. So, so I'll, I'll start to wrap up here with an example of what it could look like in church, something that happened in our church. I, I expand on this story a bit in, in my writing here, but I'll give you a little glimpse of it. One time in church, a visitor came in that I'd never met, I'd never seen. He wasn't dressed for church in the way that you would expect somebody to be dressed for church. He reeked of nicotine. Uh, he was wearing jorts. You remember jorts? So he was a little bit out of style, ripped up t-shirt, flip-flops, and you know the music starts playing. He looks around. He clearly doesn't know what to do. I'm noticing there are needle streaks on both of his arms and bruises down his legs. You know what that's about. He's just kind of, you know, like trying to fit in. And, and this guy that I'll call church guy comes up behind me, taps me on the shoulder. He's carrying this huge study Bible that looked like it had never been open. Always be suspicious of a guy carrying a huge Bible study in pub, uh, or, or study Bible in public that looks like it's never been opened. That's about something else. But what he says is, you see that guy? Church guy says to me, he says, you see that guy over there? I say, yeah, I see him. You know who that is? I don't know. Do you know him? No, of course I don't know him. Well, well what, what do you want to say to me? He said, well, if I'm being honest, pastor, he is a distraction to my worship. He had a protest. He had a cancellation that he wanted to make. He said, pastor, would you like me to set him straight and tell him how you're supposed to behave and dress in church? And I said, please don't do that. So I will remind you what I said a moment ago. The guy had needle streaks on his arm. The backstory is this. The people in the recovery movement said, you need to find some religion. Because if you find religion, your chances of not relapsing are going to go up. And so he came to the nearest church, which happened to be ours. But he smells, I mean, he reeks like nicotine, right? And so, so I leave church that day thinking, what do you, what do you call it when a, when a person trades in a heroin addiction for a nicotine addiction? I call it sanctification. I call it progress. Every person you meet is fighting a hard-hidden battle. Every person you meet is fighting addictions. You know, there's this, there's this uh, illustration I heard somebody give. I think it's a really great one. Let's say you got two people traveling to Indianapolis, one from New York City and one from Terre Haute, which is right down the road. 
and two weeks pass, and the person traveling from the East Coast is, how far is Terre Haute from, from Indianapolis rest, do you know? Hour and a half, okay. So the person traveling from the East Coast is now three hours away, two weeks later, and the person from Terre Haute is still an hour and a half away. Who's growing there? Who's more virtuous? Who's, who's got a greater righteousness going on in their lives, even though the optics are very different? I wonder, don't you, why Jesus said to Pharisees, the prostitutes, you guys, they're getting into the kingdom faster than you are. Do you know that? Because they started in New York City. You're in Terre Haute. You haven't moved, and they're about to pass you. Learn from a woman who understands what it means to be loved when she doesn't deserve to be loved and knows it. Learn what grace means. Learn what I desire mercy, not sacrifice, means. So what I did was I looked for my other opium-addicted friend, except it was legalized opium that he had gone into rehab for a couple of years before. You know, pain pills. Had recovered became an elder in our church, still to this day been one of the greatest elders I've ever worked alongside. He, he was always the one that I would send into the mess, and he would clean it up beautifully and win hearts in the process. Just through the telling of his own story of having been broken, I once was lost, but now I'm found, was blind, but now I see, and yeah, I really mean it. I really mean it. But I can remember going home in the car that day, giving some advice to the Lord about what the Lord's church needs. I said, Lord, what the church needs is for all the church guys to go away. What the church needs most is for you to cancel all the church guys. And I am, as a Presbyterian, I mean, we're the chosen frozen, right? We don't hear audible voices from God. I felt a voice. Didn't hear it, but I felt it. And I knew it came from him. And the voice went like this. Be careful, Scott. Remember what Nietzsche once said. Yes, Scott, I'm quoting Nietzsche, who said that I am dead. Nietzsche said, be careful in your attempts to defeat the monster that you don't become the monster. I am in the process of forgetting that the parable of the prodigal son wasn't about a son. It was about two sons and a father who loved both sons and welcomed both sons into the party, including the church guy. That's how the parable ends. The father entreating and pleading with the guy who is offended that he has to be called a brother to that. He says, no, this brother of yours, he was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. We're celebrating. With or without you, we're celebrating. But, oh, won't you come in? Because all I have is yours too. And so the message to me, this Pentecostal message to my Presbyterian heart, was that there is such a thing, Scott, as a grace Pharisee. That's somebody who is in the name of grace an unloving Pharisee toward unloving Pharisees. So I want you to go build a relationship with the church guy and let Mark take care of the guy who's coming off of his addiction. Back to Mr. Rogers. He was a Presbyterian minister. Yes, we like to claim him along with Tim Keller, Francis Schaefer, Johnny Erickson Tata, John Perkins, Mark Twain, Neil Armstrong, and Cheryl Crow. It's my insecurity coming out a little bit there. 
Many people are surprised to know that the major impulse behind Mr. Rogers' kindness and gentleness was anger. He was angry. He was distressed. He was hurt, lonely, sad, ashamed. All of these distressed emotions that we find being prayed out loud to God and entrusted to God in the Psalms, which are our instructional prayer guide. He had been mercilessly bullied when he was a child. And the grown-ups who witnessed it did not come to his, his defense in the way that Jesus came to the defense of a prostitute at Simon the Pharisee's house. They called him Fat Fred. Could you imagine Mr. Rogers being heavyset? He grew up overweight, and he was body shamed by his peers. And at some point along the way, he made a vow that every child he ever encounters will leave having been treated with the utmost of dignity. Every child that he encounters will leave knowing that somebody in the world likes them and sees them. He was angry and he was sad because of how often, how frequently children are made to feel the way that he was made to feel as a child. Sticks and stones may break my bones, but words can cut me deeply. Only speak words that make other souls stronger. There is a quiet majority that is craving what Proverbs 15.1 calls a gentle answer that turns away wrath. My personal belief is that it is not watertight arguments anymore that's going to win people for Christ in a climate where the church is declining because people, young people especially, are not running to the secularism of the world as much as they're running from the secularism of the church. I believe our best opportunity now is, as Jesus said to Peter when Judas was betraying him, put down your sword. My kingdom is not of this world. Malchus, here's your ear back, buddy. Now, do what you've, came to, you've come to do that the scriptures may be fulfilled. Peter, they're not taking my life. I don't need you to defend me. No one takes my life from me. I lay it down on my own accord. Pontius Pilate, you don't have any authority over me. You would have no authority had it not been given to you by my Father. So now do what you must. Give them Barabbas and cancel me. Coming from that place, getting that into our hearts, read Dane's book. Then and only then will we be able to get out there in the world and start to evangelize the gentleness of Christ, the eighth I am statement of Christ, to a world that is so thirsty for something different. Maybe in so doing, we can do our part in making Christianity beautiful again. May it be so. Let's pray. Lord, as St. Francis, peacemaker that he was, taught us to pray, Lord, make us instruments of your peace. 
Where there is hatred, let us sow love. Where there is injury, pardon. Where there is doubt, faith. Where there is despair, hope. Where there is darkness, light. Where there is sadness, joy. O divine master, grant that I may not so much seek to be consoled as to console, to be understood as to understand, to be loved as to love. For it is in giving that we receive, it is in pardoning that we are pardoned, and it is in dying, specifically, Lord, in dying to ourselves, in dying to our pride, in dying to the party spirit, that we might live to Christ the one who is gentle and humble in heart and gives rest to every soul who comes to him. It is in dying in this way that we are born to eternal life. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you. Thanks for listening to today's episode of the Gospel Coalition podcast. Check out more gospel-centered resources at thegospelcoalition.org.